and royalties podcast the home of ceos and investors in the minerals and royalties space hey guys this is your host tim powell from the minerals and royalties council i recently sat down with chris phillips the ceo of phillips energy who was the original pioneer of bringing private equity into the minerals and royalty space back in 2006 when he joined forces with ncap during the episode chris talks about hedging educating institutional investors on the minerals asset class and what his team's plans are for their next Minerals and Royalties Fund. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Chris has to say. Chris, welcome to the podcast this afternoon. Thanks for taking time to do this. Yeah, thanks for having me. I was, um, I was actually pleasantly surprised to get your invite and looking forward to it. You know, I'm going to go down memory lane for a second. So when, when Energy Council got involved in the mineral space, we did... A minerals. This is before minerals was really kind of where it is today in terms of being vogue. We did a minerals panel in 2015 at our conference in Houston, and and I saw Viper and Prairie Sky go public and thought to myself, "Hey, th- this is a different ball game than the mom and pop shop mineral space that I know. Maybe there's something here. Let's follow it. I don't really know if anyone's gonna, you know, how big it'll be. Let me." put a, a session at 8 a.m., which no one ever came to the early ones, right? And I got you, I got Brent Sicky, James Elder, who was Apollo Royalties at the time, now Momentum, Thomas Carter, right? We had a really good session, and it was like people were hanging from the rafters. It was the most full session of the conference. So I said, huh, there's something here, right? And it's kind of grown and evolved. Now we have our own dedicated platform for minerals, and it's great to have you back, back on and, and back in the scene. So looking forward to working with your team again. Yeah, thanks. I can honestly say I even am a bit surprised as to the size of the space and uh, the attention that it gets now. As you know, I mean, back in 2004, which was really my first mineral fund, there was was hardly anybody doing it. It was primarily mom and pop. And, you know, my idea was that uh, it could handle uh, another level of sophistication and professionalism. You know, and built a strategy around minerals. But the truth of the matter is, you know, I had tr- I've been in and around the oil and gas industry my entire life. So, you know, when it was time to kind of figure out something else to do, I was really looking for something that was a challenge. I was already in the natural gas trading space. I was working with Lacey Williams. Lacey has a well-established organization of which I'd been there since the onset. So I was pretty comfortable, but I was just ready to kind of do something different. I had um, I officed in 1100 Louisiana, which is the same building that NCAP offices in. There were a couple floors above it, and I knew most of the guys there. And over the course of like a five-year period, I had seen a dramatic increase in the influx of capital that was being invested in and invested by private equity. And I wanted to figure out a way to get my hands on it. And not being a geologist or an engineer or having the technical expertise to be an operator, um, although having grown up around the operations of things, I had already come to the conclusion that operations and drilling, you know, at the time Wildcat Wells was not, uh, was not the best route for me to take. I wanted to know that at least I was going to get some of my money back. So really, I was looking for something that I could build off of the expertise that I had 
that I had accumulated over the years of being around the oil and gas business, being in the oil and gas business, and also um, have a strategy that we could somewhat define rather than a strategy that was already defined by a very mature industry. And efficient to some degree, but mature. So, so let's, let's take a pause there and just dial it back a little bit because there's a couple of interesting ways to approach how you got into minerals, when you got into minerals, and the fact that you did it with NCAP and private equity in the mid to, to late 2000s, right? Which is very, very early. So your family's been in oil and gas for how many generations? I mean, let's start there. You kept saying, I've been in and around oil and gas for a while. So paint that picture. And then the fact that you were a trader is an interesting you know, career path. There's been guys who have had operational backgrounds, but trading's interesting. So talk about where you grew up, your family's exposure to oil and gas and, you know, how you got started and why trading. And then we'll pick back up on kind of where you were just talking about, you know, trying to define a a, a niche, uh, carve out a niche, right? Well, I mean, I was was blessed in the sense that uh, I was just kind of born into oil and gas. Uh, my great grandfather actually immigrated over here in the early 1900s from Russia slash Ukraine. Somehow he wandered down to Louisiana, and then about the time of the Depression, he was um, in the scrap metal business and traded enough interest, effectively traded enough scrap metal for interest in oil and gas oil. That by the end of the depression, he had one of the largest, it's called Louisiana Iron Supply, one of the largest kind of pipe uh, companies, and also one of the largest operators in the area, in the Arklatex region. And from there, my grandparents and uncle um, continued to build upon what he had uh, established. And so, you know, uh, I've got to live through what I, what I see as being the heyday of the oil and gas industry. And then watch it evolve into what it is today, which is a completely different approach to, you know, oil and gas than it was back in the 70s, 80s, you know, with the resource place today. So, yeah, I'm fourth generation, been around the oil field for a long time. But when I got out of school, I really, I was fortunate to know I wanted to go into oil and gas, or unfortunate maybe, some might think. Um, but, uh so I studied. I studied that I was a petroleum land man management. That was my degree. Also had a business degree. And I came back to Shreveport. That was in 1992. Not the best time in the oil and gas industry. And a guy named Kelsey Warren came by to talk to my family about building a gathering system for discovery we had had in Limestone County. And uh, Kelsey was leaving our office, and I didn't know. Other than sitting in on the presentation, I didn't know much about what the company did or anything. But I asked him as he was walking if I could talk to him for a second. And I said, look, one thing I know for a fact is I'm going to be in the oil and gas industry, and I don't want to live in tree quickly. And if you ever have an opportunity, I would appreciate you know a chance at, at coming to work with about six months later, he offered me a job, and so that was really in the beginning of the deregulation of natural gas, the establishment or establishing the uh, the natural gas contract on the NYMEX, and so I was I was a gas buyer, but the gas buyer evolved into a gas trader over the course of say three to four years, 
do you think the understanding of kind of the the physical side of the market and the fundamentals there and now as you start to look at geopolitics and and the, the effects of supply and demand and everything did those i mean that was 15 years right almost you spent in that space so it wasn't a brief stint did that give you a leg up or some insights in the, in the mineral space or you think it's a tool in your tool belt today for Phillips? Yeah, I think altogether, my overall oil and gas knowledge and just, you know, decision-making processes were very impacted by the time that I've spent in natural gas, you know, in, in trading natural gas. And, you know, look, when you're trading natural gas, you get a lot of exposure to all the commodity, all the energy commodities. And so you develop a field um, for you know, the, the cyclicality, and I think that it changed my perception of risk uh, a lot, and I also think it made me aware of the value within a mineral in regards to the option value, and I always kind of looked at it like that. I, I always looked at a, at a mineral, acre mineral interest, as being a long-term option that didn't expire, and that paid you some coupon, you know, to hold on to it. And that was something that was very, that, that's hard to create. And yet, you know, it was already created. And then it was a matter of trying to figure out how can you make this into more of a, at first I thought really a security was, you know, the best way to take advantage of attributes of the mineral interest. But in order to, to get to uh, the point of, of being able to maybe make it a security or have a securitized investment um, vehicle. You know, I needed capital. And um, and so that was kind of, well, let me back up one, one step. The other part was I, I have a family, my family's in the oil and gas business. And so if I ever wanted to engage in business with my family, I felt like I needed something that was very secure, you know, was somewhat de-risked. I didn't want to go drill a prospect, dry a hole, and then that's it. Nobody got confident. I wanted to create cash flow revenue, which is something that would benefit us for multiple generations. And I wanted to be involved in the oil and gas industry as it matured, because I believe in order for oil and gas to eventually be displayed, that you have to be at such an extremely high price point that it makes sense to displace it. And therefore, I wanted to be around when that takes place, but I didn't want to pay all the cost away for that to happen. Yeah, the the option value analogy and connection to minerals and your trading background that that makes total sense. So let's pick back up on what you were initially talking about. With you were in the same building as NCAP, and you saw the money that was that the funds were getting bigger and bigger in the private equity space. How did those initial conversations go? Because I don't want to misspeak here, but you guys were the first private equity backed minerals company. No, I mean, yeah. there was a f- maybe three, four years later, folks started to get into it. But even then, it, it, it only started to really become more mainstream for PE to get in minerals around 15, 16, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. So our first time in the capital was 06. And prior to that, in 05 and 06, I put together some small friends and family funds. And but during that period of time, I was also knocking down the doors of all the private equity groups and trying to create some interest in the mineral space. Truth is, at the time, there was plenty of opportunity, you know, in the upstream space competing for capital. 
And so it wasn't an easy sell. But I didn't expect it to be an easy sell. And now, when you're saying you're, you're alluding to the beginning of the shale revolution, is that kind of what you're saying you're up against? Right. And, you know, we could argue whether or not I picked the right direction. I picked a slow patient strategy at a time when people were getting, you know, for building billion dollar companies overnight. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had picked my, I picked the road and I, I was, I was uh, committed to staying, staying the course. Because I, I, I really I felt like there was a need for a mineral investment. So then, so your meeting with NCAP was the initial strategy saying, hey, there's a price disconnect. I know I can buy largely cash flowing assets and aggregate them all over the country. Is it, hey, I want to chase the rigs of NCAP? I mean, what was the original strategy or, or secret sauce that you kind of saw as an angle? I mean, the one thing that's nice is when you're early, you can just grab a lot more real estate if you may right when there's less competition so that's that's an advantage which you clearly right. have yeah and it somewhat gives you the opportunity to define the strategy i mean there wasn't a strategy that was defining how we had to, had to um present you know the opportunity and i saw an opportunity in my mind that addressed a few things so number one i said just in terms of what would be a good business for me in the oil and gas space hadn't necessarily already been executed, that there wasn't a lot of competition in terms of competing for capital, and that my experience would complement. And so, you know, we had acquired a large mineral acquisition back in uh, the 80s from Arco, and it had, you know, just been around. I mean, nobody, it was a large acquisition, but nobody wasn't, you know, it wasn't the well that we made or the well that we had to plug. It was just there. But as you look into the prior 10 years, it has been providing us with the stability that we needed in order to be able to make decisions, you know, two and three years out, to be able to strategically develop a program that was supported by the stability of the mineral. So that was, that was something that, that jumped out at me. And then the other part of that was that I wanted, I had been, I constantly heard this kind of reoccurring thing, which was my father saying, God, I wish we could just do something that was more repeatable. And, you know, even though you learn stuff from one well that you drill, you know, when you're drilling something else, somewhere else, different geology and everything, there's not a lot of carryover from that, you know, that you can build on. Whereas I thought this strategy, you, you could, and not only could you, I felt like you could statistically, financially engineer a portfolio that was more likely or highly probable to fall within a defined range belt. And in my experience in oil and gas, it was like at the beginning of the year, you knew how much money you were going to use to drill different deals, different wells. But you had no idea of what you were going to have at the end of that You know, so that, that's a challenge, and especially in a little family uh, business. It's a challenge to, to build something that really you have no idea what you're going to look like at the end of each year. You know, this way I could say, hey, we're going to spend $100 million and we may generate a 15% return. But the likelihood is it's going to fall within this 6 to 10% return. You know, ninety percent probability it's going to fall in there. You know, and so 
that was that was what I was really kind of hinging off of was just here cash flows. Everywhere else that there were cash flows out there, stable cash flows, they were being bundled. You know, they were being acquired and bundled and then securitized. And these were cash flows that I understood that weren't being weren't being, you know, aggregated, weren't being acquired. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalties space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. I also want to thank Enverus, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. MineralSoft is Enverus's mineral management platform that enables owners to capture missing revenue and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is Enverus's platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enverus, MineralSoft, and EnergyLink, then please visit www.enverus.com or email businessdevelopment at enverus.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. Did, did you ever leverage a hedging strategy across the portfolio over the years or look to do that, given your background? Yeah, so in our first, well, my first two friends and family funds and then our first income fund, we were very actively hedging. And not only actively hedging, but kind of putting hedges on, but also taking them off when it made sense to take them off. You know, I mean, if prices went down to a dollar, which they have, now we have again in natural gas prices went down, I was willing to, or we were willing to take that risk. So we would unwind our hedges and take that profit. You know, and so originally, before I ever talked to Incap, my, my, my original idea was to use minerals as the physical base of a trading um, strategy. You know, when you have the physical commodity, it's a lot easier to trade the financial side. And so by having the fizz that you could design a trading strategy around natural gas, minerals, and then the financial market. And so that was originally how I was intending to take advantage of minerals. It's kind of like you just said. I mean, using hedging to kind of build a trading book. Nobody was interested. So, so I didn't do that. But I started to recognize the value to a private equity firm. And I, I believed that ultimately it would provide them with another platform to raise capital off of and would ultimately provide the investor with or some investors, you know, with specific objectives, you know, it would meet their objectives better without having to take on additional risk. And I still believe that. No, I mean, you, you definitely see there's a role for private equity in minerals. There's always the challenge of, is it predicated on an exit? And it's, it's the shot clock starts as soon as you start acquiring stuff. But you started to see different private equity firms establish minerals platforms with longer hold periods, lower hurdle rates, cheaper cost of capital so that they have a little bit more flexibility. And, you know, you, you'll appreciate this. I mean, for a private equity firm, they constantly need to be going back out to LPs, raising newer funds. And 
you need storytelling that is compelling in the context of the market cycles and everything. And minerals is something that resonates more than traditional, I guess, for some investors. So it's definitely, definitely something that'll continue to grow in the private equity space and that need will still be there. But so let's go back. So it's 06, 07, you start with NCAP, you did four funds with them, right? And they got progressively larger. What was the strategy like? And how did the portfolio come together? You guys did a lot of blocking and tackling, right? And it was very diversified. So walk me through that. And then minerals buying today versus minerals buying then in terms of tax rolls and technical data and all the access to resources, uh, whereas before I'm sure it's extremely fragmented. So what was it like in the earlier days trying to buy minerals and put together, you know, buying campaigns and, and everything like that? So let me pre- preface this with, uh, I mean, I still believe there's a tremendous amount of opportunity out there in the mineral space. It has definitely evolved and um, it's become a, a, the efficiency of the market has become better. There's still some inefficiencies there. But, um, but back to kind of, you know, why I picked the space in the beginning, you know, ties into your question, which is, you know, strategically speaking, you know, what was our focus? And our focus was not what you see traditionally and to date in the mineral space, which is kind of focusing on single base and um, maybe even focusing on specific operators and just putting together a, a good, you know, consolidated um, interest in a specific area of base. I, I looked at it totally differently and said, you know, kind of back to statistics or financially engineering and outcome, I said, you know, we need to have kind of a base criteria and a base allocation. Now, the criteria would define the types of properties that we were looking for, and the allocation would define how much of of each one of the commodities. And then in addition to that, we wanted to have diversification as it related to geography as well. So that it kind of tied into our overall thesis, which was the activity or the growth that you incur within a portfolio is somewhat defined by the capex that's being deployed in the space. And so I want to be geographically diversified enough and operator diversified enough where I have a, I have a strong amount of confidence and the amount of capex that we will receive or that we would be the beneficiary of on an annual basis. So what that meant was we had to really kind of define our criteria then to identify the types of opportunities that would you know most would be most likely to produce the type of outcomes that we're looking for to be able to meet our our um, allocation that we were looking for and to build a diversification. So that led us to really hinging on public operators and private equity-based operators that we get information from. Additionally, I mean, in 06, you know, we were, uh, it's hard to believe that that was the beginning of this just massive acceleration in technology. And so there weren't a lot of people taking advantage of data collection, collation, and just kind of assembling it to, to make use of it in terms of making decisions. And so we implemented that early on by developing our own systems to be able to uh, really sort through a high level, a high volume of deal flow, and then identify the ones that had the criteria that we were looking for and then met the allocation that we were trying to achieve on an annual basis and on a portfolio basis. 
diversification versus that rifle shot strategy, I think that's always an interesting debate. We did a webinar on it last year. I think it comes down to your cost of capital and, and what your long-term plans are for the portfolio is really kind of the, the main takeaways from the discussion we had. But when you look at it, it's theoretically, you want to be in the areas that have the most resource potential and the most rigs, right? But if you can look at it, there's political risk that can pop up state to state. You have the oil price war and how that affected oil last year. If you're in natural gas, you look real smart. You can look at the downstream space and whether you're you're in California, you have heavier oils or you know if you have lighter sweet crews. I mean, there's so many different ways to factor it in. And you just, going back to how you're talking about financially engineering a portfolio, you just think the diversification across it, it just helps lock in, you know, lower the standard deviation, which is part of the, the formula for success, right? Yeah, I mean, look, in 06, uh, it was a little bit different because what we would do is we would have a very stable, mature asset that would be the, the kind of anchor of the, of the portfolio and, um, and then build around that. So, you know, one allocation that you got to look at is the allocation producing to non-produce. And so now you can get that all within one unit, right? Um, then I had to go buy some mature oil field or some mature gas field. And then that allowed me the ability to take the risk of the non-producing um, assets that were now starting to be developed in the more uh, manufacturing or resource play. You know, they're being manufactured more mechanically. You know, I mean, they're programmed out, programmable. Um, into our program act. And so um, that's how we would uh, build the, our portfolio, you know, to accommodate for that risk. And what that did was it allowed us more time for that stuff to develop. I mean, I've seen companies over the past, and I mean, we've even been in that position where we had an, we were overweighted towards non-producing. And it's hard to ever catch up. From that. You know, if you go two years and you don't, meet 50% of your forecasted revenue um, that you were expecting, well, you're behind the curve on a private equity type of a, a structure. And it's very challenging then to, to to catch back up. You know, but if you had enough income, if you had enough production to wade through it, then, you know, you didn't, you were, you were able to take advantage of organic growth. Let's talk just, and then we'll start to transition on what your team is working on now, but just kind of talk numbers. So number of transactions, what was the average size? You know, if you want to talk about AUM or number of NRAs in the portfolio or anything like that, whatever you're willing to, to share on those four funds you did with NCAP over a 10 year period. And then we'll talk into what you guys are working on now. So I want to, I want to kind of readdress, come back to something that you had talked about a minute ago, which was kind of, just how minerals fit into the world of investment, into the world of private equity, you know, the capital that is targeted towards investing in, in minerals. In some ways, I think it's a disadvantage to us that we have, you know, a very well-established upstream oil and gas industry and investment strategy or investment um, process that is, it, it works for upstream and it works for the private equity companies that are investing in upstream, but it's just not the same as, as the mineral space. And in my mind, the mineral space correlates better with 
say, the real estate business than it does with the oil and gas industry. And I believe that if there will, you know, it's very hard to get uh, to change people's perception. And so perception of energy is risky, cyclical, and, you know, all the things that we already know. And so minerals get perceived in the same, get, get viewed in the same light. I believe that, like, when you looked at a, let's use a pension, when you looked at their overall investment portfolio, you know, their real assets were heavily weighted towards real estate. And those, the majority of that was heavily weighted towards income-producing real estate. And in my mind, you could create the same thing with minerals while also providing them with this inflation hedge that they needed from energy. And therefore, they took a much riskier energy investment in order to just get that, you know, inflation hedge or, or however you want to look at it. And so, you know, when you look at the allocation to energy in, in general across all the pensions, I mean, it could probably, they could probably get no return and it wouldn't influence the overall outcome of their, of their portfolio. I mean, it's maybe 5 to 10% of their total portfolio allocation. So why take on additional risk there? You know, it's kind of like you could have, in my mind, you could have the mineral take on a minimal amount of risk to provide you with all the inputs that their formula needed in order to kick out, you know, perfect portfolio balance. Sure. And so after spending years with private equity capital, you know, I felt like I could go and I could educate, you know, the institutional market and they would, you know, the light bulb would go off and they would think this is the greatest thing that's ever been presented to us. It'll work perfect. But trying to reprogram them to think like you want them to is a challenge. And so, you know, I better understand the role that private equity plays in, in just the world of finance. For one, you know where it fits in the stack wide there, and uh, and I'm I'm grateful for having had the opportunity to work with private equity because we learned a lot over that period of time. We have four funds within Cap. They committed a total of four hundred million dollars over the course of those four funds. They were all four successful. We generated returns in excess of what our kind of baseline target was on all of those. I think that. Uh, you know, I was proud to see when NGAP sold their portion of the Phillips 1 and 2 fund to uh, Kimball. You know, that I, I felt like it was a validation for the type of portfolio that we had created and how it worked within the public um, arena, you know, in the, in the MLPs. And, um, and so, but it was just time to kind of try, try a different approach. Um, which is why we ended up uh, stepping away from, you know, the private equity capital and trying to go out and raise a fund of our own. I think that they wanted to push us towards taking more risk when and more non-producing. And I was like, I felt like we were at a, a point in the maturity of the resource play where you didn't have to take the risk anymore. You could buy producing and non-producing, kind of like I said earlier, all, all bundled up in one unit. Um, mm -hmm. So why step out from from there? You know, pay up a little bit more and buy the production and get the growth. And um, and yes, you're minimizing maybe the overall return, but you're you're reducing your risk significantly. Okay, so Chris, so 
you part ways with NCAP around 2016. Then you had a stand, you guys had a vehicle called Aristo Minerals. Talk about that briefly, and then you're back under the banner of Philips Energy. And, you know, around all this, you had mentioned your initial strategy of going to pensions and educating institutional investors on this asset class. You know, that's the reason this podcast exists, right? We want to educate institutional investors and family offices on what minerals are and, and provide a, a library of, of content and resources that people can reference when they do their homework because that didn't mm-hmm. exist before, right? So I, I kind of, I can feel your pain probably on, on the long drawn out process that that is. And it's a collective effort from you, me, your peers, uh, really everyone else out there, right? As an industry to, to get the word out. But talk to me about Aristo and then just the process of re- meeting with investors and where you guys stand today. Yeah, so in 2016, like you said, uh, we ended our relationship with NGAP, and I think I mentioned it earlier, I'll say it again, I mean, I'm very, have a lot of gratitude, you know, for those guys, uh, number one, for recognizing the opportunity and for giving me a chance to uh, execute on our strategy. They're a great group to work with and a great mentor to have, you know, as you grew into a, you know, and into the, the big boy league. You know, when you're working with private equity, uh, it's different than having a small family business. It's different than having a small prison family fund. And I really enjoyed that. And six, really, I took a couple of years and just, we, uh, we wanted to, my family was invested in our minerals, uh, portfolios within Cap Asset Buy, and we wanted to continue accumulating minerals. And so, um, we took our, our, Assets in kind, in cap kept theirs, and um, and so that took some time just to sort all that out to get uh, our organization, you know, uh, get their hands around the assets that we had and get them all, you know, loaded up and and um, and begin managing those. And so I'd say, you know, for two years I was kind of just on the sidelines, uh, enjoying my kids, enjoying some time away from the from the industry. In 18, you know, we got serious about raising another fund. And so Aristo Minerals was established as the operating company um, behind uh, our Phillips Fund effort. So Phillips uh, Energy Funds was also created, but Aristo was the name that was promoted at that time. So they were both both out there together at the same time. But, uh, you know, I just... I felt like we would benefit from marketing ourselves off of an already established name, you know, after spending uh, 10 years in the space. And so uh, the Phillips Energy became, Phillips Energy Funds became more the, the company that we, uh, whatever. So you've gone to down the road of you want to raise institutional capital. You know, when you came up with the concept of coming in minerals, you could buy more mature assets, cash flowing, the window of opportunity to do that with private equity cost of capitals closed a bit. And but you want to stick to that model, right? Uh, diversification, heavier on the cash flow. And so you're getting a, a cost of capital uh, and financial partners that allow you to execute that effectively, correct? Is that kind of the, the synthesis of it? Yeah, I mean, on, on one hand, I look at it from the investors and I'd say, you know, I wanted to provide them with an investment that has a steady stream of cash flow, 
they give them exposure to energy, uh, but does not expose them to the risk, nor does it expose them to the to the result of the cyclicality, you know, that's inherent within the industry. So, as far as cost of capital goes, I mean, yes, I need a cost of capital that is supportive of the strategy, and so confident that we can create a portfolio that's capable of doing that. And now my job is to try to convince the institutions of the world that we can do that. And so, you know, although the last, the prior, you know, three years was a really challenging time to raise capital in the energy space, we're starting to see it open up a little bit. And I think that right now it's an ideal time to capitalize on a, on a strategy like this. And so, you know, we're in the market with it on and we have you know, spent a significant amount of time uh, meeting with, really just kind of making the introduction. I mean, it's a whole, it's a, we had to start all over. You know, we didn't know any of the people that were the CIOs or on the boards of all of these various institutions out there. And it's a different presentation. So, you know, there was a lot, there was a lot of learning that went into launching uh, an effort to raise institutional capital. And, um, man, I've learned a lot over the, over the, over the period of time that we've been doing it. But I'm confident, you know, that there is a market for it and, and it's our job to get out there and get the product and then create the trust and confidence necessary for them to invest in it. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. I also want to thank Enverus, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. MineralSoft is Enverus's mineral management platform that enables owners to capture missing revenue and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is Enverus's platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enverus, MineralSoft, and EnergyLink, then please visit www.enverus.com or email businessdevelopment at enverus.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. So question from a storytelling perspective, what resonates more? Is it the underground real estate analogy? Is it hedge on inflation? Is it alternative asset class for yield in a low interest rate environment what resonates the most i'm sure it's a combination of everything but when do they start to say oh interesting right and and the follow-up meeting happens and cas are signed and due diligence uh, starts to take place with the institutions yeah i mean you're right it's a combination of all of those and, and you hit on on all the important ones um yeah i like to kind of focus on the fact that you're buying discounting cash flows you know, I mean, and everybody can relate to that because there's in, in, in all industries, you know, there's when you can accumulate discounting cash flows, you know, it's perceived at least as being a nice, safe investment that provides you with 
you know, exposure to the space that you're in. And so, I, you know, I use that a lot. But uh, obviously, the real estate analogy is a good analogy as well. I mean, it is underground real estate. So it's a real asset. And it kind of goes back to the same way I looked at how am I going to convince my own family, my own father? You know, how am I going to convince him that I can invest money and I'm hey, not going to lose all his money? And that there's security behind the investment, you know, that if something were to happen to me, whatever, you know, that there's always something to secure that that investment and that be that security is in the form of a real asset. Those were things, you know, that were important to me because I knew it was important in order to convince my father. And then once I could convince him, then I could move on to convincing, you know, the private equity world and then convincing the institutional world. And because I really believe in what I'm saying. I mean, I recognize it as being, you know, a unique opportunity because it's very challenging, as I said earlier, to create that option that I described earlier. You couldn't go financially create an option that you get an 8% annual return off of and it never expires. So one last point. So you guys are going to focus on larger cash flowing assets. You have a trading background. Do you think debt has a has a role to play in the mineral space? I mean, if you have cash flow, you can theoretically argue that. But you know, I think one of the arguments around minerals and that it's a an asset you can hold in the perpetuity Depends how the debt is structured. If it's just on the cash flow itself, but then if the, the asset itself has to be used as collateral, you start to bring in a different layer of risk. That, thoughts on that? If you guys have used that in the past or see it as a, a part of the formula going forward, because that's something that comes out quite a bit. And, you know, traditionally folks say you don't, you shouldn't use that in minerals. And we, we did an, an episode with a gentleman called Troy Eckerd about a month ago. And he had been in upstream wildcatting most of his career, and he saw the the shorter cycles that were taking place with shale development, call it every four to five years. And, you know, he said that shale development is being, is thriving and, and it's dying on the back of debt. And he goes, want to know what doesn't use debt or rely on debt? Minerals. And so I thought that was a way to weather these cycles cleaner for my investors. thought that was really well said by him, right? But there's still, I believe there's a space for it. Thoughts, given your background. So I think it probably has a lot to do with the, the individual strategy. But when you use it, when you use a strategy like ours, where you're primarily acquiring cash flow, that you can manage that debt in such a way that, you know, you're not increasing, you're not exponentially increasing the risk that you're exposing yourself to or exposing the portfolio to. You know, so, yeah, I'd say there's challenges with that because it's a, it's a challenging asset to to lever up because you got especially the way that we did it because we got assets spread out in so many different counties and states and the operators and so you know working with the bank to get an advance rate you know I mean you weren't going to get enough of an advance to really put yourself in uh, in a bad position I mean you might get 30 percent of your portfolio value. I try to keep things simple. So, I mean, we we aren't necessarily advertising the fact that we would like to use debt, but I would rather that um, be decided by, you know, lead investors. However, I think it is a, it's a good strategy to lever up as long as you do it in such a way that you don't put yourself in a position to have it, you know, create any, 
any uh, detriment to the overall um, outcome. Kind of finishing up on hedging to revisit that, you kind of described a dynamic hedging strategy in the beginning, right? That was kind of what you saw. You were going to unwind hedges and, you know, I don't know, getting a little outside my lane here to try specifics, collars and all that. But do you think macro, you know, just looking at macro trends and trying to play cycles and, you know, hurricanes and things that cause major shifts? Or do you think there's room for dynamic hedging? The fact that you guys can do it in-house with your expertise, is there room for that to create, you know, manufacture extra value? Yeah, so I think, number one, you, you need to be opportunistic about your, your hedging. And then I think that for our strategy, the, the best best thing we can do is protect the downside, you know. And so uh, I don't like to get overcomplicated in terms of how we our hedging strategy. I mean, really, I like to take advantage of opportunities that allow me to put a floor in place at a cheap cost and then opportunistically take advantage of those times. I mean, it, we should all have some sense or feel for, for the market, for the value of the commodity. And there are times when it feels like it's overpriced, you know, and there's times that feel like it's underpriced. And when it's overpriced, I think, you know, you got to act upon that and, and put hedges in place. When it's underpriced, I think it's okay to remove those hedges, you know. And so if, uh, if my job is to create value, that's one of the ways that I can create value is to micromanage our hedge portfolio in order to best complement what our, what our thoughts are on the market and thoughts are on the future. And, you know, you may be wrong from time to time. Hey, you'll never get hurt protecting yourself, you know, from a downside slide. And you need to be as aware as you can about where you believe prices are headed. You know, you should have a three and a five year outlook and you should have a, you know, one and two year outlook to kind of dictate your acquisitions, you know, the short term outlook. But your long term outlook is what you, you base your hedging strategy off of. Great. Well, Chris, it's been a pleasure catching up after all these years. Over to you to, to close out the episode. Well, I did want to ask you a couple of questions. Um, sure. Now you have become the kind of one of the gurus in the mineral space. So congratulations on that. <laughs> uh, I really appreciate the effort that you've made to make people more aware of the mineral space. So I, you know, kind of define and identify what those differences are, you know, from the operating and um, upstream space. I mean, it is an upstream product, but it's different, you know, and it's different how each of us all approach it. Uh, bringing more awareness to it is, is great. I really do appreciate that you stuck with it and you've developed out a good uh, audience, I believe, that's interested in the space and wants to see how it progresses. No, I, I appreciate that. It's, uh, you know, I, I really focused on it last year you know you know our broader company energy council which headquartered in london and business in every region of the world and you know i i couldn't travel i couldn't do anything that we normally did pre-covid last year our business model changed overnight i i always i was hosting 30 dinners a year with ceos a couple dozen receptions our conferences mm -hmm. meetings around all those trips so i was covering a lot of ground and so why did i triple down on minerals. It was already a growing focus of ours, but no leverage. The challenges you see with 
with other companies, right? You didn't have the large teams and the, the, the HR restructuring, for lack of better words, with layoffs. And, and then it's just non-cost bearing. So it, it's a different look and feel for investors. And I said, you know what? As uncertain as it is, I think this is a good use of my time and I can still add value because people need to know what's going on and there's still so much education needed. And that's kind of how Minerals and Royalties Council and this platform we have started. And just I've had fun since. So when you have your ear to the ground, you talk to everybody, you can you can see you don't have to read about the trends or the needs. You you hear it and you see it every day. And so there's a there's a need around educating investors and 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 connecting them and 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 doing it in an efficient way. And so we're we partner with the boutique Adam Investment Partners out of London to help give players more exposure to investors in, in our in our global collective global network and and we're doing a number of other things. But that that's been real fun. And so I appreciate the little shout out there. But uh yeah, I, yeah. I think there's a shift, right? There's a shift that your team is going through that many others are going to have to go through, and that's to get capital direct. And I think private equity has a role. Private equity, largely speaking, has the vehicles in their portfolios that they decided they want to have a flag in the ground in minerals. They don't want to have four or five portfolio companies. And so a lot of groups are going to, they have teams, they have relationships on the ground, systems and technologies they've built to win at minerals, but without capital, you can't get very far. Uh, and so we're just trying to help bridge that gap from an education standpoint, access standpoint. You know, one thing we're going to be doing here shortly in the podcast is a, a mini series around compliance and all the regulatory things that go into putting a fund together and protecting your employees, protecting your investors and just doing it the right way. And we're going to have fund administrators and lawyers on and and I think that'll be a good resource for our, our audience. And again, it's just kind of at a need kind of seeing out there. There's going to be a lot of first time funds and it's yeah. you, you've had some growing pains, you know, right? Yeah. What it's like. So it's a change. I mean, it's like a different business. You have to learn a new business. And, but the truth is, I mean, every, every capital in across the board, you know, investment capital becomes more and more efficient every year. And, you know, the markets are efficient. And in the energy space, you know, these are two, in my mind, they, they should target the, the targeted capital. There are two different types of capital. There's capital that wants to take more risk, you know, and then there's capital that is more, it meets the objectives of a cash flow investors, right? Yeah. Cash yeah. flow investors. Yeah. And so, you know, I think our, our, I think our space is becoming more efficient and there's investors that it fits them to invest in non-op, non-op you know, um, development, really. There's investors that, you know, target the operated space and then there's investors who are better suited or who the mineral space would be a better fit for. I also think, you know, when you talk in terms of your, your company and how global they are, you know, I've always thought that educating the global market would benefit the mineral space because it takes out a lot of the, a lot of the unknown, takes out a lot of the risk. It is a good fit for a lot of investors. If you, if you, if you showed them, you know, the returns in the, you know, a 10 year pro forma and you didn't tell them it was oil and gas, it would fit a lot of people's investment criteria. But then when you say, oh, it's oil and gas, well, number one, it confuses people because they thought of oil and gas as something else the majority of their career. 
and, um, and that requires educating them as to the different options there are within this one business, you know, that there's multiple options that can minimize or increase your risk and that can, you know, make for a better fit within your portfolio to have a variety of risk profiles in terms of options for investment. You know, the, there's a gentleman by the name of Rick Grafton that I've had the pleasure of getting to know. He's out of Calgary. Um, he mm-hmm. runs a, a firm called Grafton Asset Management. It's a private equity firm, kind of like an asset manager. But he, in the Canadian all patches, probably one of the top institutional salesmen that the Canadian space has seen. And when I got to know him over the years, we, we gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award. He was one of the early ones to open up European capital coming into the Canadian junior space. And mm-hmm. so did a lot of, he's unlocked capital from the Middle East. And so he's very well versed on kind of finding these pockets of capital and bringing it to the oil sector. He just told me, you know, I had kind of thrown out the, the ESG headwinds and challenges and, you know, shrinking pools of capital. And he's just like, Tim, there's always money if it's structured correctly and the returns are there. There always is money and there always will be money. And I think one of the things at a high level about institutional capital is that they want to go direct. That's a theme that's been happening for the better part of a decade. And, and that's kind of goes back to your team and others that are going to need to raise direct. That's just following the trend of how to, how to compete in minerals, but also what investors want. And so structuring, you know, the, the investment the right way. So it's, it's easier for them to put capital in. Cause I'm sure what you found is, is the politics and the red tape around getting money from certain institutions. So I think getting educated on that and I think there's a way to position a, a fund around the types of companies or the assets you invest in. And is it natural gas? Is that cleaner? Can that tick an ESG box? And then minerals, how do you measure that from an emission standpoint? Cause you're not creating any emissions. So there's all sorts of ways that'll be, you know, in terms of structuring and how you position it that freely enable investors to put money to work because that's their job. Their job is to put money to work as quickly as possible and responsibly as possible. And I think that's the ingenuity that will keep this industry going forward. That's the next chapter is figuring out how to structure it differently to keep the capital flowing in because energy, as you well know, is a, is a huge lion's share of supply that makes the world turn. So I, I have a lot of conversations and privy to a lot of people who think like that. And that, that's what gets me excited about, you know, tomorrow and next year and 10 years from now, right? Yeah, well, I mean, look, your role is as important as anybody's in helping people better understand what the options are in terms of investment opportunities in the energy space. And then understanding, like you said, I hadn't even thought about it, but, you know, you can promote the ESG side of things as well as we could, probably better than we can as it relates to this investment versus an upstream drilling investment. You know, I don't, I don't even know the answer to that. Can you pick a box, you know, that because it's natural gas or because you don't have, you know, you're not touching it? Well, I know, I know folks on the producing side that are not, fracking new wells Mm -hmm. you know it it, you know it's kind of mature and it's workovers and 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 eur they've raised money from esg pensions i I know for a fact so that that's why that's why i'm saying right it 
It's just the optics can change and it's just yeah. figuring out how to do that. Cause again, the, the rules are changing. And so it's learning how to play within the new rules is really all it is, right? Right. And, um, you know, you brought another point up a minute ago, which was, uh, oh, just in terms of first time fun. And I mean, there may be a lot of first time funds out there. I don't know how to get the investor comfortable that those funds are capable of operating, not necessarily executing their strategy, but operating at a, at the level that their, their expectation, you know, that meets their expectation. So organizationally speaking, I'll say, you know, number one, I learned a lot working with NGAP. I learned a lot more when I took the time and stepped back having worked with NGAP and looked at my organization and how I would have done things differently how I would structure things differently to adequately report on your strategy and the execution of the strategy in such a way that you can communicate it, you know, in a concise and informative manner that meets their expectations. And so I think, you know, as it stands, we are well prepared to provide the institutional market with a product, but also with an organization that understands what needs to be done and how things need to be done in order to meet their expectations. So I think that, but how do you do that for every oil and gas company, which really oil and gas is a, you know, it's become a lot more sophisticated, but it's always been kind of a little bit looser than say the financial world. And so how do you, how do you ingrain that into an organization? You know, when they, that's not what they're good at. Yeah. I think it's, you know, outsourcing that expertise third-party vendors that specialize in this and that becomes your you know your organizational structure right and or if you if you bring on a partner that has that i i think the other thing too i mean you guys are technically a first-time fund but you've also were one of the first players in the space and had built for funds so there's two ways to take that there's track record which you guys clearly have and then there's what, what you're talking about is the operational track record from a fund administration standpoint. And, and the folks that don't have either of those, listen, I, I think it comes down to how did you start? Friends and family funds. You got to slow but surely do that. It's more manageable. It can be a little looser for lack of better words. And then you build that track record, million dollar fund, two million dollar fund for, and I've seen it from a lot of the groups and you graduate and it takes time. You know, everyone wants to get skinny and have a six pack tomorrow, but guess what? Hard work and eating well is the formula that works for that. So it, it's just the same. And yeah, I think as folks start to get into raising, they want to raise large amounts of money and figure out, you know, how to do that and what, what investors need. There's a cost associated with that, right? From a personnel standpoint and, and fees and everything. But in exchange, you don't, you have more control or a better cost of capital. I think people just have to understand all that and there's no cutting corners and, you know, it, the, the one thing, and I kind of tip my hat to you guys, I mean, two, three years, right? Going on the road, educating. It's really difficult to keep your management team and your, your office funded through that. That's the one challenge that gets expressed to me in conversations, right? Guys have been private equity. They want to go out. They got some momentum. They got a good story to tell. And six months later, they're like, everyone's interested, but ah, we don't have any money yet. Like, can I really go another 12 to 18 months with zero revenue funding everything? It's difficult. So that's... And you have no control over the time. I mean, you yeah. really don't. 
you can't drive it. I mean, and so in a, in a, as a business person, as a leader, you know, you're, you're accustomed to trying to drive the results that you're looking for. And it's very challenging when you're, you know, it's, it's sitting late uh, a lot of the time. And so, I mean, we were fortunate that we had four successful funds to build off of in all the ways that you said, you know, that gave us a track record, it gave us the experience, and, but it also gave us um, some capital to, to work off of. Um, but you can only do it for so long before, you know, it's the, you got to, you got to make money too. Um, and so, you know, I'm excited because I do think we're moving into, you know, we're moving into a more positive, uh, environment, both in terms of capital that's being allocated to the space and the, and the, and the commodity price environment, I think is going to get a good core underneath it for, for some period of time. And so that's, that's great. I think we have a great, um, strategy that does correlate very well with the objective of, of some investors, not all investors, but some investors. And, uh, and I think we have a team that is uh, more capable than, um, than we were, uh, more capable than most in the space just based on the experience that we've had and then the strategy that we um, execute. You know, it's different. It's different from the majority of those out there because we really – reverse engineer an outcome, and then build a portfolio that's most likely capable of, of resulting in, in that, from that return target. And we've successfully demonstrated we could do that now six times. And so, you know, that's exciting that you have that to build off of. And, um, and now it's our job to go out there and educate and convince and gain the confidence of those who are looking to place capital in the space. And we're not going to give up until we do. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next year. Really. Awesome. Well, Chris, thanks again for coming on. And you yeah, know, I'm, I'm always looking for an excuse to come out to Louisiana uh, and and just kind of do the rounds out there. Crawfish boil season's coming up, so um, it's here, man. Coming. It's already here and they're big. And you know, as soon as we're actually in the midst of our uh, rainy season, I swear it feels like it rains here every day. So you may want to wait until until that. Let's up a little bit, but yeah, obviously we would love to have you here. Love to show you around, feed you some crawfish, Good introduce stuff. you to the, to the Louisiana life. Awesome. Well, Chris, thanks again. Really enjoyed the chat, and uh, we'll be in touch. Have a great weekend. I was awesome catching up, and again, thank you for all that you do. We all appreciate it, and uh, I love seeing what you've uh, what you've been able to kind of continue developing the space into. So, Thanks. No, appreciate that, Chris. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Council represents the largest network of senior minerals and royalties focused executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our royalties clients to help them place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about how we can help your team, then please email me at tim.powell at energycouncil.com or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com forward slash minerals dash royalties dash council forward slash also please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy thanks and see you next time